fresh manna fell to the ground as a gift from God while the Israelites were in the wilderness. This is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can now experience the taste and the smell of fresh manna. Today, you will be listening to Bob Benson, pastor of the Cadillac 13th Street, Manton, and Music Seventh-day Adventist Churches. And now, here's Pastor Bob. Lots of crazy stuff happened in this last week, wouldn't you say? It's been a while since, I think it hasn't been since 9 that I've had so much stirring thoughts in my mind of what's going on in the world. Is it closer to the Lord's coming? Certainly it is. Let's have a prayer. Father, we ask that you would guide us with your spirit and bless us as we contemplate who you are, how great you are, and the soonness of your coming and the message for the day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Elsie and I were watching several of the press conferences that the president did coming from the White House. And, you know, when we had a board meeting earlier this week at the school, one of our board members said that her husband's business and dentistry was going to have to shut down because they needed the masks and the gloves. And I said, well, there goes that income, you know, boom, there goes that income. That's a lot of responsibility. But not only him, but you got the dental hygienist, you got the office receptionist. That's a tremendous economic impact in part of our church family. But they're not the only ones. You know, the restaurant business and so many other businesses have had to shut down during this time. Bars, you know, I, I'm not too sad about that, to be honest. I think in some ways we've been benefiting by some of these, uh, this virus kind of thing. I was talking to my son Daniel yesterday. He was down in Los Angeles. He says, you would not believe the clarity out here. With no cars on the road, he was able to drive 70 miles an hour all the way through Los Angeles. And what usually took two and a half hours to drive to Long Beach to see my brother, took him less than an hour. (laughs) No traffic. So there are some interesting things that have been on the positive side, you might say. But it did come to my mind, and my wife mentioned this to me too, that Jesus, in his words, in Matthew 24, verse 6, he talked about, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, and All of these things, don't be troubled. These things must come to pass. The end is not yet. And then verse 7 talks about nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdoms, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Of course, the pestilence we're talking about is the coronavirus. It has a more technical name. But I thought about what does that mean, pestilence? And I looked it up in the Greek there. Then I looked it up in our dictionary. It's talking about really a fatal epidemic. Fatal or a disease. And we've certainly had fatalities with this. In the United States, a week ago, 1,600 confirmed cases. Of course, there weren't a whole lot of test kits available to find out how many would be diagnosed that way. But then we have 14,200 confirmed cases as of yesterday. That's a huge jump. Of course, again, more test kits came on board. People got tested. And even right here in our own Cadillac community now, we have one of those 14,200 that are positive for the coronavirus. Looking at the death rate, a week ago, 40 reported deaths in the United States. But this week, 1,600. Again, you can start to see the numbers starting to stack up. They're starting to increase, and we're just rapidly increasing as we get more and more testing done. We're discovering that there's several more people that have this virus. The global death rate past 10,000, and there are roughly 245,000 confirmed cases as of yesterday, as of yesterday, and growing. Although, the good news is, out on the east and China, as it's reported, there are diminishing tests being positive. So there are some things that are going a positive direction. But this kind of crisis reminds me of the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 15 and 16. He talks about when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then verse 16, then let them which be in Judea flee to the mountains. So they knew, they had a warning that when you see this thing, get out of town, Christians, don't stay around. So we know that Rome surrounded Jerusalem and then they pulled back. Eventually they would come back again and close it off and they'd eventually kill most everybody inside. But the Christians had heeded the words of Jesus and it is said that not one Christian perished 
in that huge loss of life because they had heeded the warning sign. In parallel, as we see a pestilence with the magnitude of the coronavirus in conjunction with the other signs that are taking place, there's still earthquakes taking on. Even while this was going on, Elsian said, did you see that there's some earthquakes and tremors over here of certain magnitudes? Wasn't really big like six plus, but there's still some rattlers that are taking place out there. So when we see all these things taking place in conjunction with the other signs Jesus foretold, it reminds me of his words, Mark 13, 29. He says, so you also, when you see these things happening, as we're seeing them happen today, know that it is near even at the doors. They're talking about the second coming of Christ. Just know that it's close. Know that it's close. And that's not the end point where Jesus has to say. That awareness serves a function. It serves a purpose. So what is that purpose? We see that in Matthew 24, verse 42, it says, Watch, therefore, for you don't know what hour the Lord is coming. That word watch is more than just, you know, looking up there. Is that hand, man-sized hand up there in the cloud somewhere? No, it's not talking about that kind of watching. It's like reading God's word, seeing prophecy, and seeing how the world and the conditions of the world are matching up and lining up with these things that were foretold. Then, as you see these things, know that it is near. So, watching also includes another function. Watching unto prayer. So, watching includes not only knowing what the Bible says will take place, but prayer would imply also that our hearts are also right with God, that we are receptive of the impressions of the Holy Spirit, that we are living in a right relationship with God, so that should we die before he comes, or he come while we yet live, we are ready. Watch and be ready. Verse 44, Matthew 24 talks about, Therefore you also be ready. That's just a straight admonition from the Lord, for the Son of Man again will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So this morning, in light of the coronavirus, in light of another shot across the bow, in my opinion, of the nearness of the Lord's coming, it made me think about my sermon this morning, where we're talking about one of the areas that we will need to demonstrate being ready will be that, by God's grace and through submission to the Holy Spirit, my spouse and my marriage will reflect the oneness of the Trinity in how we relate to one another. Oof. That's kind of scary, isn't it? The oneness of the Trinity reflected in our marriages as husbands and wives. Now we're talking the battlefront, aren't we? Because <laughs> there's a carnal nature that wants to get involved. But Christ has said that he is longing for a manifestation of his character to be revealed. And I'm going to tell you, normally we think about that in terms of manifestation in our personal life, in our corporate life. But I had never thought about the manifestation of Christ's character to be revealed in marriage, in the context of marriage. I had never thought about that before. And then I realized, wow. Because there's this oneness that God wants. Jesus prayed for this oneness in John 17. He says, I don't pray for you disciples here alone, no, for all those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. He desires this oneness, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent us. So God desires the church, us individually, us collectively, to be in oneness with the Father and the Son. So there's that oneness there. But that oneness, that's what the oneness is on the vertical dimension, but God also desires a oneness on the horizontal dimension. That's the second dimension. Mainly that within our marriage relationship, there would be seen this oneness. And I was reading an interesting comment. It talked about if God is in oneness with me, and God is in oneness with my spouse, then oneness with my spouse shouldn't be a problem, right? Doesn't that make sense? If I'm on a vertical relationship with God and I'm working on that and we have an established, we're working, God's working in me through his spirit to establish this oneness with him, then it's not 
hard at all for God with my wife working on that and her relationship with God, for God to just bridge us together and the oneness that's on the vertical would be seen and experienced on the horizontal. That would manifest the character of God. And that's what he longs for before he comes. He wants to see the manifestation of his character in his people. Certainly that would also include marriage. So in Genesis chapter 2.21, that a man will leave his mother and father, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So there's the oneness of John 17, Jesus prayed for. There's the oneness given in the Garden of Eden for a husband and a wife to experience together. But then there's a comment by Ellen White, which I had cited before, but I'll say it again, that joins the two together. Adventist Tome, page 32, paragraph 2. The greatest evidence of the power of Christianity, there's the John 17 side, the greatest evidence of the power of Christianity that can be presented to the world is a well-ordered, well-disciplined family. There's the Genesis 2 side. John 17, Genesis 2, kind of married between here. This will recommend the truth, as nothing else can, and is a living witness of the practical power upon the heart. So God is longing for this manifestation of his character that can only be displayed when there's the oneness with brothers and sisters inside the church family, oneness as husbands and wives. That shows the power of God and the power of the gospel, and that God is living among us. So, Jesus' prayer, I believe, it's interesting, Jesus' prayer includes, in a special sense, the husband and wife as they would achieve oneness on the vertical dimension. Then they would also achieve oneness on the horizontal dimension with their spouse, mutually submitting themselves to serving one another. That's what Ephesians was talking about. And that will give the evidence that the Holy Spirit is alive and working in us, and that we're filled with the Spirit. So the end product is clear, oneness with God through Christ and his word. John 15 talks about that. Oneness with one another as believers and our spouse. But I want to challenge you, this is another topic, we'll talk about it another time. But oneness of unequally yoked partners is a very difficult situation. It's a very difficult situation because it can never be as deep as if both spouses are sold out to Christ. The oneness of a husband and wife where one is in the oneness of Christ and related to Christ on the vertical dimension, but it is not shared by their unbelieving or unequally yoked spouse, the bridge of the oneness between them can never be as deep. Don't give up hope, friends. Don't give up. If you're in that situation, don't quit and give up. No, because God wants to work a miracle. Through the oneness of the vertical dimension, God wants to help to establish a deeper oneness on the horizontal. And through that one connection, perhaps help the spouse to connect on the deep vertical dimension of oneness with God. That will bring a higher level of oneness between husbands and wives. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 to 18. Ephesians chapter 5. We'll start with verse 21 first, and then we'll go back to the other ones. I had never looked at Ephesians this way before. Very fascinating study. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. I've got the New King James here. And this is how it reads. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. That's New King James. How can we experience this mystery of oneness? Submitting to one another in the fear of God. NIV says similarly. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Interesting, a little different take there. One is submitting to one another in fear of God. The other is submitting to one another in reverence for Christ. So that is the ticket is as we submit and out of reverence for Christ, this can take place. Without God, we cannot achieve this oneness. Without God, it is impossible for us to achieve this oneness. But let's take a look at this 
passage here because verse 21 is the tail end. We call it the caboose. Because if you ever look at Paul's writing in the Greek, it goes on and on and on and on. And there's all these subjunctive clauses, all these different clauses. But the sentence is still intact. We're talking a paragraph before there's a place where you could put a sentence. I don't know. Paul is an amazing writer. And if you take Greek, you love the Gospel of John because it's just plain simple Greek. You have very hard time with Paul's writings because it's all over the place. So we got to take Paul's writing in verse 21 and realize that that's the caboose on a long train. And let's go back and pick up the earlier part of the train because he's commenting this, having established something earlier. We go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. So be careful how you live, not as fools, as those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity for doing good in those evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but try to understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, let the Holy Spirit feel and control your life. Looking primarily at verse 18, but you kind of get the impression that the rest of verses 15 to 17 certainly fit where we are here at the end of time, the end of this earth's history. So in light of the end of earth's history, let's pay attention to what we have in front of us here in verse 18. Let the Holy Spirit fill and control your life. So the Greek word for fill, pleroou, means continuously being filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit. That's not just a one-time thing. It's like, accept Christ as your Savior, boom, that's it. Never have to connect again. It'll carry you all the way through. No. He says you want to be continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. When I read through Daniel, Daniel chapter 8, it uses the word tamid, which is the Hebrew word, which means continual, the continual. That's a continual sacrifice for sin. There's the morning and evening. There's a continual incense on the altars. And there's this continual, as it were, grace that is available. There's this continual power that's available. And here we see Paul kind of takes that word, Talmud, as it were, and he goes over here and he applies that we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit on the continuous basis in order for us to succeed in what God is asking for us to reflect that character of Christ. We must continuously be filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit. So, Jesus told his disciples that they were to wait. Remember Acts chapter 1? Wait until the promise of the Father has come upon you. You will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you'll be my witness. Don't be heading out there to go witness if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. Hold back. Hold back. Prayer and fasting, confession of sins, praying for one another that you can be healed while you're waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And those things take place and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon you. And now you can go out and be a powerful witness, and the world can be converted as they hear the gospel. In the same way, Paul is talking to us, that by being filled with the Holy Spirit, we will be able to do verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence of Christ. That's the only way it's possible. If you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, it's not possible. You will not submit to one another. And as we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we will lose our pride, which is so much the foundation for so much friction in a husband and wife relationship. We will lose our self-will. Whoa, now that's hitting home for me here because underneath this sweet Swedish boy, there's a little band of iron, and it's the self-will of Pastor Benson. And But if I am continuously filled with the Holy Spirit... God can even break down Swedes so that they'll lose their self-will and they'll instead be converted to humbly serve others, including their spouse. See, if you're not Swede, you don't understand. I heard Germans are kind of tough sometimes, too. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> I'm not in this alone, I hope. But anyway, <laughs> I was speaking to the choirs myself here. So... It's only as we've learned to serve others by the power of the Holy Spirit that we will have the power to face the challenges of marriage. And marriage is a challenge. I was just telling my son today as we we're talking to him while he's driving. I said, you know, eventually you're going to get married. There's going to be the honeymoon. And then the battle begins. 
you're going to see your selfishness. You won't see your selfishness. You'll see their selfishness first. They'll point out to you your selfishness. You'll acknowledge that, yeah, there's a little bit of selfishness in me, but it's not as great as the selfishness that is in you. It's going to take a while for the Holy Spirit to bring you back around and look in the mirror and say, this is the only picture that I really want you to focus on right now. Look to Christ, but look in that mirror because we need some work. <laughs> we need to do some work here. So, so son, won't understand these things until you get there, but these are the things that are ahead for you. <laughs> Hang on. Don't throw marriage under the bus. God established marriage for a blessing, and it is a blessing. And we'll talk about how it is a blessing because, honestly, wow, it can be a curse if you're not willing to let the Holy Spirit work inside of your life to change you to being a wonderful spouse for your spouse to enjoy. So while our marriages and our lives often seem to run on fumes, I was just talking to my son Daniel, and he said, man, Dad, he says, I imagine you're doing this and that and the other thing. I said, you're probably feeling a lot of stress. I said, no, son, actually, after you and your sister and brother left the house and we've been empty nested, our level of stress went down quite a bit. Thank you, kindly. <laughs> we aren't running here, there, and everywhere. So mom and dad, actually, we're doing okay. Don't worry about us. You know, We have things we have to do. There's no question about it. But I don't know about you, but in those years, more than once, we were exhausted when we hit the sheets. We went right to bed because we were beat. Running here, running there, trying to, you know, Pathfinders, Adventures, and prayer meeting, and church, and oh my goodness, so many things to do. So, I don't know, maybe you can relate to this. Sometimes where you in your spiritual walk, sometimes you in your marriage, you can feel like you're running on fumes. Just running on fumes, so close to empty, uncomfortably close to empty not wanting to hit empty. The important thing is to know that you can be refilled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit power. It's important to know where to go to get this infilling of the Holy Spirit as we study God's Word and as we pray and as we're in communication with Him, as we fellowship to one another, as we stir up one another to love and good works. We can build up one another in our love for each other and our love for our spouses. It is important to know these things. There was one time when Daniel, he had flown into Detroit Metro, and Elsie and I had just gotten back from a Mexico missions trip. Daniel had just flown in from a GYC weekend, and we were so excited to see Daniel. We had so much catching up to do. We were talking, 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 you know, back and forth, and it was late at night. I think he had 11.30, come in late, came in late, and we were just talking so much, and all of a sudden I heard a ding, and I looked, and it's like the gas light's on. Oh, mercy. Here we are, you know, and we were a long ways from any gas station. It's like, what are we going to do? I don't know if we have enough gas to make it to the next gas station. I think I might have missed the first ding, you know, when it's like 50 miles out, and here comes another ding. you got 10 miles to go or something like that. It's like, and it was cold out. It was wintertime. It's like, oh, man, not like that. If we run out of gas, we're going to freeze. Then it's like, what are we going to do? Do we keep on going until we run out of gas? Or do we kind of pull over here and see if we can get some help and still have the car to keep us warm once in a while? We'll turn it off. When we get freezing cold, turn it back on, heater. So we did that. And I called Mark Barlow. I didn't have a clue that he was 45 miles away. I thought, you know, he's in Detroit I mean, area, you know, and it won't be too far away. I called him. They answered, you know, just a warning for you who might think of answering the phone early in the morning if I'm calling, I might be asking for a favor. <laughs> but I'll tell you, Mark got his gas can and he drove 45 miles to come over and to bail us out. You know, I'm so thankful for Mark being willing to do that. But it did teach me a lesson. You never want to run out of gas. You never want to run out of gas in your car. You never want to run out of gas or the power of the Holy Spirit in your spiritual life. You don't want to go so far and get so excited about catching up with the things of this world that you haven't gone to the gas station and spent your time in Bible study and prayer and been refilled. 
Because if you are refilled, the importance of having the Holy Spirit is that he brings all this love with him. And he fills us with his love. It's one of the fruits of abiding in him. He just pours this love into our hearts. He pours this peace into our hearts. He pours his power into our lives in order that we can mutually submit to one another in love. The power of the Holy Spirit. Now that we know where and how to get this power in our lives, Paul begins to outline, says, now, you know, continually have the Holy Spirit live in you and being filled with the Spirit. Now I'm going to outline to you some responsibilities as husbands and wives. So it's in that context, it is in that context that we can go on to look at what those responsibilities are. Because if we go on to the responsibilities without having the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we're doomed to fail at everything Paul writes down that is God's design for us. So we look at Ephesians chapter 5, 22 to 24. It says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the husband is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. So if you think I'm going to preach a big sermon on this, you're dreadfully wrong. I'm going to make one sentence pass and we're done or moving on to the next. So Paul's talking to wives to submit to their husbands. But then he goes on in verse 25. Now he talks to the husbands about their role and their responsibility. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So here Christ, he's telling husbands to love their wife as Christ loved the church. And he makes a stronger appeal to husbands to abandon their self-interest than was the appeal given to wives to submit to their husbands. There is a stronger appeal, husbands, for us to abandon our self-interests. And that's our role. That's what he's calling us to. It doesn't really matter if you are the husband or the wife. We are not to live our lives for ourselves, but for the other. That is the hardest and yet the most important function of being a husband and a wife in a marriage. Man, if I'd known that, you might say, I would have never signed on for this. <laughs> well, the good news is that the good Lord knew that you needed a spouse to help you <laughs> overcome that carnal naturedness that we have, that self-centeredness, and to abandon that, to learning the lesson of being like Christ and loving like Christ. Paul is really not saying anything new here to husbands and wives, because what Paul's saying is completely consistent. He's simply applying to marriage the general principles of the Christian life. Christians who understand the good news of the gospel undergo this radical change in the same way that they relate to people as husbands would relate to their spouse. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. You'll see what I mean here. Paul's not like, okay, special treatment for you who are married. Uh, no, he's saying, hey, you know, yeah, here's for married. But you who aren't married or married, it doesn't matter if you're married or not, there's still some basic principles of Christianity that apply to singles, marrieds, widows, divorce. What does it really matter? It applies to everybody. So if we look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 2 to 3, Paul's writing to the group of believers in Philippi. He says, Now fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Doesn't that sound like Acts chapter 1 a little bit, or Acts chapter 2, where they came together and they were of one accord and of one mind? Paul saying to the believers of Philippi, have that kind of experience as a church corporately. Then he goes on in verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness or humility of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. So there it is. Paul says, hey, Christians, you know, here is the role model. Christ is the role model. And I want you to, in lowliness of mind, in humility, esteem others better than yourself. That certainly would not exclude, well, thank you, Paul. That counts for everybody except for my spouse, actually, because, it's, no, it includes your spouse even more so. 
but it certainly includes our relationship with everybody else, believer or non-believer, actually. That we are to, it didn't say esteem them better than yourselves, esteem them as better than ourselves. So it doesn't matter whether they're better or not. The treatment that we would give them is, is as if they were. Because it's interesting that a lot of times when God gives us the value of his son on Mount Calvary, when we understand what God's done for us, it tends to raise our level of living in the spiritual life to a higher plane than it was when we are just only known as sinners with no hope of salvation. Look at Romans chapter 15. Paul's still talking. You know, you're getting the impression that the reason why righteousness by faith was so prominent in Paul's writings is he grasped these concepts of how we were to be in our relationship with God and our relationship with one another and what the Holy Spirit wanted to do in us to bring in the righteousness of Christ, the holiness of Christ within us. Romans chapter 15, verse 1, it talks about, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. There's this otherness focus once again. Not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself. So there it is. Christ's example. He didn't come down here to please himself. He submitted himself to his Father. Laid aside his divinity, submitted himself to his Father, and did everything to win us to salvation and be pleasing to us in that regard. So we're not to please ourselves. That's not what our focus is. We're here to please the Lord and to unselfishly love and please our spouse. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, another Pauline passage of Scripture. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Powerful passage here. Paul writes, For brethren, you have been called unto liberty, only don't use your liberty for the occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. So God is calling us out of the liberty of bondage to sin and to death into this glorious freedom that we can have in Christ Jesus through the power of his Spirit. And that we're to use this freedom not to serve ourself, but we are to use it to lovingly serve one another. Powerful passages of Scripture here. Beautiful picture. So Paul here, basically that word for slave or servant comes from douloi. And we are to be slaves or servants. That means we're to put ourselves down low. We're here to serve one another, not to put ourselves up above one another like the Gentile rulers did, but we're actually to take the lower level and serve, which is actually the higher level in God's eyes. Because Christ humbled himself and became a servant and met our needs even at the cost of his own life, now we, like servants, we are like servants, but to one another. Beautiful passage, beautiful role model that we have in Christ, and the lesson is there for us. Servant is someone who puts the needs of others ahead of their own. And if that is how we are to serve each other in this way, how much more should husbands and wives have this attitude and service to one another? What this means for husbands who are the head of their wife cannot negate that. He is also his wife's brother and a bondservant, according to Galatians 5.13. I've heard too many times, and I'm sure you too are, where the husband toting the Bible points to the text, Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands. But they neglect to realize that their spouse is their brother, their sister. And we are to, the golden rule, treat them as we would want to be treated or even higher. Love one another as Christ has loved us, and we are to love them to that level. So if you ever hear somebody doing that, challenge them on that. Because it's kind of fascinating. It's really a veil of selfishness that they bring up only that text in isolation and neglect the rest of Scripture. So husbands and wives are to serve one another, even give themselves up for one another. 
This does not destroy the exercise of this headship, though, but it does radically transform it and change it. When I realize that, yeah, I have the responsibility of spiritual leadership in the family, yes, but that doesn't mean I treat my spouse of any less worth. It's not always easy to put the interest of our co-workers and our friends ahead of our own interests, but practicing this principle in our marriage, it can be even more intense and difficult. On a daily basis, there are many times where there's interaction. You know, it's like, well, what do you want for breakfast? You know, and then when are we going to eat? And what time should we leave? Of course, you know, opposites often attract. So oftentimes there's the one who likes to be early. And then they're married to somebody who, if they just get there within a millisecond of the second they should arrive, it's all good. Then there's how to negotiate this in such a way that love is maintained and you know how it is. So, yeah, I just had a situation here where, you know, sometimes you want to be there early. And so I had drunk a little bit of water and I needed to use the restroom, but it was close to starting time. And so, you know, do I do this? Because I know that you honor your spouse in their desire. They want things on time. And I do play it a little too close sometimes to being there just on time and sometimes a little over. So anyway, it's just kind of like interesting because I was able to get everything done. But you know what? When I look back at it, I thought, interesting, I should be preaching on this because that was an example of putting myself ahead of this desire of my spouse. There's just another example. It's a simple example. I could bring out a whole bunch more, believe me. You know, every day... It's not on my wife. It's just that you have these intersections of doing things together, whether we're going to go drive here or that or whatever. And so you got to find a way. you got to find a way to lovingly submit and surrender to one another mutually so that love can thrive in the marriage. So we come to these fork-in-the-road moments in our marriage, and we have to decide whether to go with the wife's suggestions or desires or the husband's. And I've heard it said, it's interesting, that if you're always winning, then, you know, it doesn't bid well for you because you're putting yourself in a situation where you are married to the loser. Not that your spouse is a loser, but by always demanding that your way is the dominant way, you are making them a loser by your selfishness. So there needs to be some mutual give and take as we submit and serve one another. So there are three possibilities as we come to these forks in the road. One is we can offer to serve the other with joy. You know, one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy, by the way. So you can't offer this genuinely unless you're filled with the Holy Spirit. The second way is you can offer to serve the other with coldness. Maybe they can say, you know, this is a fact, and they can factually be correct, and so you go along with it, but you're not at all happy with it. But because it's factually right and to hold the peace, you're going to go along with it, even though you disagree with it and you're boiling inside. Serving one another with coldness, that doesn't really work well, by the way, and if you ever tried it. Or there's the other way, we can selfishly insist on our way. <laughs> you know. One of three ways, joyfully with service or service with coldness, or you know what? No, we're going to do it my way. There's a whole song about I did it my way. <laughs> I would have to suggest that probably shouldn't be in any Christian hymnals. So the main problem in developing this servant's heart in marriage is this radical self-centeredness of our sinful human nature. It's like cancer. It's like cancer, which exists at the very center of our marriage when it begins. It just has to be dealt with. Paul gives a counsel on how the spirit-filled Christian is to overcome this problem. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 and 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 and 5. And we know this is a love chapter. And today's English version says it this way. It says, love is patient and kind. 
Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Love does not demand its own way. Love is not irritable, and it keeps no record of when it has been wronged. So clearly, love is the opposite of self-seeking. Self-seeking is pursuing your own welfare before that of your spouse or others. So love is the opposite of self-seeking. So in Paul's list here in 1 Corinthians 13, self-seeking is seen in patience, irritability, a lack of graciousness and kindness in speech, envious brooding on the better situation of others. I heard that once recently. How come they have all this and I have only this? Also, even holding past injuries and hurts against others. Have you ever been there? You had a little dis- disagreement or something, and, and then you get to the heart of it, and then you go back and you start to bring up something from the past. Well, you remember when this happened, or that is just exactly what it's talking about here. That keeps no record of wrong. Keeps no record of wrong. Isn't that interesting? You know, somebody said it's a good thing when you go into marriage with both eyes open, but when you get there, have one eye half shut. (laughs) So, Because your spouse isn't perfect, and you certainly hope they have at least one eye shut for looking at you. So when Dana Shapiro did some interview with divorced couples, she was trying to figure out, you know, what is it that led to the marriage disintegration? You know, maybe there's some lessons we can learn from the experience of those who have gone before. And here's what she found. She found that each spouse's self-centeredness asserted itself. And eventually it will, you know. I mean, I tell you, it wasn't probably too deep into the honeymoon where my self-centeredness started to come out. But here's the challenge. That not only is there the self-centeredness of one spouse, But the partner's response was to get more impatient, more resentful, more harsh, and more cold because they had also a self-centered response. So if I initiate a self-centered action with my spouse, if they're not converted and connected with God and feel the Holy Spirit, they will give a self-centered response And you know where we're headed with this. We start a spiral that's going down. It's going down. So making it simple, they responded to their spouse's self-centeredness with their own self-centeredness. And self-centeredness, by its very character, makes us blind to our own problems and our own weaknesses. That we might be hypersensitive. We might be offended. That we might be angered by that of others and their own selfishness that they're doing. So it's a problem. It's a problem. We need the Holy Spirit to help us figure this out. So if we're spinning in this spiral, self-pity plays a part, anger, even despair, while the relationship gets eaten out as one partner self-centered, the other self-centered, and there's nothing that's really holding it together. And that's where the gospel comes to the rescue. That's where the good news comes to the rescue. The good news is Christ's unconditional love for us, to even die for us while we were yet sinners, the Holy Spirit can use this to fill our hearts with his love. Then our love bank will be filled inside, and when our love bank is filled, it frees us up to be generous with our spouse when they may not be so loving and unselfish towards us. Our love bank is filled, and maybe we take a few draws on it as we cover that, but it keeps us in love ministering to one another, to at least ministering to our spouse. It's kind of difficult if you have any element of selfishness in you, because if you're not getting satisfaction, of being ministered to by your spouse, that selfish nature is like, why should I do that for them? Because they didn't do anything for me. In the words of one singer, what have you done for me lately? 
is not a safe motif to bring into the marriage. So this love economy, if we want to call it that, it works like this. You can only afford to be generous if you actually have some money in the bank to give. If the Holy Spirit is pouring his love into you, you've got money in the bank. And you can afford to be generous. But if the Holy Spirit's not filling you with his presence and his power and his love, your line is depleted. Your margin is narrow. And you tolerance for taking selfish behavior is small. To have a happy marriage it requires a spirit-filled ability to not only serve, but to take ourselves out of the center and put the needs of our spouse ahead of our own. And that results in a deep level of happiness. That brings joy to our marriage. So this type of selfless love helps to fulfill Jesus' prayer, John 17, that we started our sermon with this morning. That we might be one even as the Trinity is one. This also helps to fulfill the one flesh experience of Genesis chapter 2. That we might have this oneness because the architect is the one who designed marriage. And we are now reflecting the very character of the architect in our oneness as husband and wife. In giving up ourselves or in losing ourselves in selfless service and love for our spouse, we will find our real self that Christ designed for us to be. That's really important, you know. Jesus talks about, you know, that you give up your life and you find it again. If you give up your life apart from Christ, apart from the infilling and indwelling of the Holy Spirit, apart of being filled with his love, and then selflessly ministering to others, if you give up the selfish life, you actually find the real life God designed for you to enjoy and to live. It'll bring you joy. It'll bring happiness not only to you, but to your spouse as well. So how do we confront self-centeredness? 2 Corinthians 5.15 is a great text that hits it head on. It talks about Jesus that he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Christ died for us that we shouldn't live for ourselves. There goes selfish living. Here comes selfless living. But we should live for Christ who died and rose again for us. So Jesus calls for us to live for him rather than ourselves. And the way we do this is by heeding his two commandments, loving God with all our heart, with all of our soul, all of our mind and our strength, and secondly, loving our neighbor, loving our spouses as ourselves. This is a problem because Western culture doesn't accept this. We talked a little bit earlier about your spouse. You find out how selfish your spouse is. They find out how selfish you are. And then... You acknowledge your part of selfishness, but you still believe there is a greater level of selfishness. That creates a problem. You know, especially if you feel like you've had a hard life and you've experienced a lot of hurt that others haven't experienced, then that's not going to help. I've actually been through that not too long ago. I've listened to some people espouse those very things. Okay, I shouldn't do that, but you don't understand me. I don't know if you ever heard that before or not. Yeah, I shouldn't have done that, but man, you don't understand what I've been through. You don't understand who I've been married to. <laughs> that kind of comment. That's what we're talking about here. The woundedness makes us minimize our own selfishness. Maybe we've been through a lot. You know, I have to say, as I look at the CPA, Child Protection Agency Council, a lot of kids are getting rough starts today. And you know that they're going to take those rough starts with them into their marriage. And their marriage is going to be off to a challenge right from the start because they have no positive role model in their mother or their father who are usually separated by this point. And it gives them a difficult situation to start with. 
So we have a couple responses to this dilemma we're wrapping out here. We can decide that our woundedness is more fundamental than our self-centeredness and determine that unless our spouses see, our spouse sees the problems we have and takes care of us, it's not going to work out. It's all about me. Or we can determine to see our selfishness as a fundamental problem and to treat it more seriously than we do our spouse's selfishness. We are the only person really who can take responsibility and have complete access to our selfishness, and we need to take the responsibility for it. When each spouse makes the commitment to give themselves up and stops making excuses for selfishness and begin to get to the root of selfishness and root it out, irregardless of whether their spouse responds or not, then and only then do we have a prospect of having a great marriage. You know, it only takes one to begin the healing process. It only takes one. Ephesians 5.21 talks about submitting to one another in the fear of God. And when we put this into effect, usually but not always, usually it will soften our spouse's effect. It will soften their hearts. And as we both decide to work on our selfishness and to minister to one another, the prospects of our marriage will be great. So I want to close as we finish talking about selfishness and marriage and the power of marriage with this quote we had in Adventist Home 32.2. The greatest evidence of the power of Christianity that can be presented to the world is a well-ordered, well-disciplined family. This will recommend the truth as nothing else can, for it is a living witness of its practical power upon the heart. May God bless us as we seek to live this selfless life and be filled with the Spirit in our marriages. You have been listening to Bob Benson, pastor of the Cadillac 13th Street, Manton, and Music Seventh-day Adventist Churches. If you enjoyed this sermon, why not visit one of his churches this coming Sabbath or a church near you listed on strongtowerradio.org. You will find the Cadillac 13th Street Church west of Cadillac at the corner of 13th Street and M115, the Manton Church in Manton at 509 South Maple Street, or the Music Church in Music at 123 East in Music, Michigan. All three church services begin at 11 a.m. This has been a Strong Tower Radio production.